minutes with their own thoughts and they had a choice of just sitting there or giving themselves an electric shock to sort of pass the time or fix the boredom. And 75% of people couldn't stand it for 15 minutes and had to give themselves an electric shock because they, they couldn't stand being alone with their own thoughts. I think we're in trouble. Oh, sorry. Um, works automatically just to keep me awake. We've been going through the Ten Commandments and true to form, we've been going through them backwards. We started at number 10 and we've arrived this morning at number 6. And number six seems pretty straightforward. You must not murder. <laughs> I know, it catches people by surprise, that one. And so that means you mustn't kill people. That's all there is to it. Thank you very much. You can go home now. Make sure you don't kill anyone. But what does it actually mean? It prohibits the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Now you see, having said that, I can already see problems. How do you define intentional? Sort of, does accidentally on purpose count with that? And what exactly does innocent mean? Now come on, do you know any innocent people really? No. So perhaps you can murder. What does it mean about justifiable homicide? Who's ever heard that term? What about revenge? Retribution? Self-defence? Yeah, he was coming at me with a, with a rolled up newspaper and I just happened to have the kitchen knife out and ran him through. Yes, what about legless people shooting bathroom doors and things like that? Huh? <laughs> Sorry. So, anger can be a, a great part of that. And, uh, and you might notice that it says manage your anger is the, the, the title of uh, this series of talks. But I'm going to leave the anger to perhaps a few other people or a later time because I don't think I'm going to be talking too much about anger uh, this morning because I, I want to ease us into the idea of understanding the implications behind a commandment that says you must not murder. Because it requires us to actually look at what murder entails. There are two things that balance, if you like, with murder in the middle. One is life and the other one is death. And murder is a bridge between the two. So first of all, we need to think about life. Our understanding of life is paramount. I love this, this quote, which hopefully is up on the screen, which says, Life is not a possession to be defended. It is a gift to be shared. Now, if we didn't see life as a possession, perhaps we wouldn't want to take it from so many people. If we didn't see our own life as a possession, we wouldn't be so worried about defending not just our life, but our lifestyle and sharing more with other people. But first, let's go to the other side. Let's think about the consequence of killing death. Let me read you this quote from J. John's book, Just Ten. He talks about death. 
And he talks about, he says, there are fashions in attitudes as well as clothes. For instance, in the Victorian age, everyone talked about death and sex was a taboo subject. Today, in our generation, we're preoccupied with sex, but we won't talk about death. The whole business of dying is hidden behind a screen of words, passing away, the departed at rest, no longer with us. The change is fascinating because we face the same risk of death as our Victorian ancestors did. 100%. 100% of us will die just as 100% of people in the Victorian era also died. Yet unless we work in hospitals or funeral parlours, most of us will only rarely see dead people during our lives. Unless you watch The Sixth Sense. He sees dead people. Bizarrely, though, we're more familiar with death and killing than any previous generation. On our television and cinema screens, we've seen fictional death in a thousand ways. Violence is continually pumped into our culture. We've spawned a generation of movie heroes from James Bond to Jason Bourne who are not exactly walking models of anger management. Over our popcorn, we've watched men and women getting shot, Drowning, exploding and being burned alive, crushed by cars, eaten by sharks, swallowed by snakes, consumed by aliens and even, but more rarely, dying quietly in bed. What was once an X-rated film suitable only for adults is now branded on re-releases suitable for 15-year-olds. Death, like money, is suffering from inflation. Nightly, our children stalk around their computer worlds armed to the teeth and generating body counts worthy of a respectable war. Battlefield simulations allow teenagers to inflict realistic bullet wounds with every conceivable weapon on vast numbers of people. For serious mayhem and extreme gore, watch any zombie computer game. Of course, it's hardly killing, is it? They're already dead. On news programs and documentaries, we gawp at the bloody dead of wars, shudder at earthquake-crushed bodies and wince at terminally malnourished infants. Then we switch channels. Worryingly, as we stare at the screen, the world of reality and illusion increasingly merge. Was that actually a film of a bomb explosion or was it a clip from a computer game? Are those really burnt bodies or is it Hollywood computer-generated imagery or, as we know it, CGI? So... We're not unfamiliar with death. In fact, we embrace it on our computer screens on a regular basis. But it's our attitude towards it which changed. There are actually parallels, and I, I wonder if it's no coincidence that the Sixth and the Seventh Commandments deal with death and sex. Number seven was don't commit adultery. Number six is don't kill, especially people who have committed adultery. <laughs> I think they're meant to go together. We know more about the mechanics of both sex and death than we ever have. And yet we, need, we seem to know less about the significance of either one of them. The sixth commandment raises other issues. How unique and valuable is a human life? Can you put a price on it? How should we treat each other? You know, if we, we're not allowed to kill each other, is a slight maiming all right? You know, is, is a bruise a problem? You know, a perhaps we should do, settle everything by boxing or, or martial arts or cage fighting. 
see Mike if that's your answer. How do we cope with difference and disagreement? Because that's where a lot of it comes. We're getting a lot of uh, talk in the media now about anti-terrorism laws, about stopping people from Australia going over to countries in the Middle East and joining in holy wars. And uh, I, I read a, a news article the other day from the other side which said most of these people are actually going for humanitarian reasons to help out in these war-torn countries. Now as cynical Westerners we look at that cynically. But there are both sides to that equation which have varying degrees of truth. So the principles behind the four words you shall not murder are far-reaching and go way beyond just sticking a law on a stone tablet and saying, here, follow this. First of all, the value of life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Now, for those of you who like, like to take Scripture literally, God, I don't believe, literally made a clay model and breathed life into it. Mainly because clay and other rocks are inorganic and we are organic. I think it's actually a pictorial representation of the fact that God, with the materials he had at hand, because don't forget he created the universe, not just the earth. I mean, this, is, this muddy rock in the middle of our solar system isn't, isn't the pinnacle of God's creation. There's the whole universe out there. He didn't just have dirt from this planet to pick from. Because I think in, in believing things like that, we, we diminish God. We sort of think, well, look, he just found some dirt because that's all he had. No, he had a universe to get stuff out of. And so behind all, the, all the, the pictorial imagery, the one truth in that is God created us. We are God's creation. And life comes from God. As science advances, there's often this, a lot of talk about creating life in the laboratory. But really all that happens is we get God's template and we tweak it a bit. You've heard the story about the three scientists who decided that they could actually create life just the way God had done from a lump of dirt. So they, they actually called on God and they challenged him. They said, God, can we have a word? And so God appeared before them and said, yes, what is it? He said, I think we don't need you anymore because we can do what you did and we can get a piece of dirt and we can... Make a human life. And God says, whoa. He says, okay. That's a good challenge. He said, okay. He said, go for it. And so one of the scientists reached down to grab some dirt. And God said, ah, 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 get your own dirt. We can copy what God does, but we can't actually do what God has done. We can also see that God made mankind different from the animals. In Genesis 1.27 it says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here we have another piece of imagery. If you think that God looks like you, you're sorely mistaken. Because he looks like me. <laughs> it doesn't mean that God has two eyes, a nose, and a mouth like us. You think, well, okay, what does it mean? Because we get caught up, image to us is visual. But there are other images that we can have. 
there are images that are created by sound, feel. And what it's telling us here, God gave us the potential denied to all other animals to communicate with him. We are created in his image because we are able to stand with God and communicate. Nothing else, no one else, no other creation on earth can do that. That We are made in God's image. We reflect God. We don't look like him. Most of you are thinking, well, if you thought he looked like you, I'm glad God doesn't look like us. But it means that we bear his likeness in our attitudes, in our behaviours, our thinking, not only partially though, because we know that God's ways and his thinking are above ours, but we can aspire to be more like God in those things. We're actually called to be his representatives here on earth. We're called to act like him, love like him, and relate just like he does to us. We are created in his image. And Jesus came to confirm that status, because guess what? Jesus did look like you and me. Possibly taller, possibly able to grow more of a beard. I I'm not really sure. All the paintings I've seen of Jesus when I've asked the artist, no, nobody's actually seen him. Nobody took a sketch while he was here. If they did, you know, got burnt in the, in the campfire just to get it started 100 years later. Who is this guy? Never mind, let's just start the fire with it. Who knows? Nobody knows what Jesus really looked like. But he came to show us that how to actually behave as the image of God. Jesus came as an example, God in human form. And he walked this earth as, as an example of what it would be like for us to be God's image, which is why we're called to be Christ-like more than we're called to be God-like. Because if we try to be God-like, nasty things can happen, believe me. Another way in which we're made in the image of God is that we're social beings. Because who knows, God is not alone. As a single person, he is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he has a social side to him which he has duplicated in us and calls us to interrelate, to have a relationship with other people, whether it's in a marriage, a family, whether it's at work. We have each other and God actually gave us each other. Now you look around here, God actually gave each and every one of us, every other one of us. And I know some of you sort of walk away thinking, oh, I couldn't wait to get away from those people. You rude people, God gave you those people. Now wherever, you might come away from work sometimes thinking, I'm glad to get out of there. Those people are horrible to me. God gave you those people. Sometimes you think, why God, why? There's always a good reason. Guess what? It's not about changing them. Enough said. We're called to live in a society where each person is valued and able to make a unique contribution. So we can see three, right, three reasons why human life is sacred. Number one, God has the power to give life and that's his power alone and therefore he has the authority to take it away. And that's his alone. Second, as we're made in the image of God, to take the life of another human is to destroy someone patterned after God and close to God's heart. And third, 
God made us to live together, each contributing to what we have and to each other. Murder is the most brutal breach possible for a society that is interlocked that way. So have you got that? First, God has the power to give and take life and it's his authority alone. Second, we're made in the image of God so that taking someone else's life is destroying something close to God. And thirdly, we are called to live in a community. Murder breaks the very basis of that community living. We need to learn the value of human life, all human life. We live in a disposable society, disposable razor blades, disposable contact lenses, disposable pens, disposable nappies. Even those, some of those are filled with chocolate. I heard that there was a certain baby shower with uh, disposable nappies with melted chocolate in them and people had to guess the basis of the chocolate, which tells me that anybody will eat crap as long as it tastes of chocolate. <laughs> Ah, melted Snickers bars. Of course, in the end, if a baby ate a Snickers, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Now, it's interesting that Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 talks about taking a human life. I'm not going to delve into this because it raises sometimes, I think, more questions than it answers. I'm going to leave it another time to talk about it but it says if anyone takes a human life and this is God talking to Noah after the flood so Noah's restarting and God says to him if anyone takes a human life that person's life will also be taken by human hand for God made human beings in his own image now we can see here that God takes murder so seriously that the person who commits that murder God takes out of his protection. Now we can get into arguments here about whether capital punishment is okay. We can talk about wars and killing, but I'm not going to. I'm actually going to save that for another time. But we need to understand that this is another reason why, because you get Christians who are pacifists who claim that, that war is killing people And therefore, there should be no killing at all. Are you being rude down the front? I hate it when rude people whisper and you can't hear what they're saying. And you get other other Christians who say war is necessary because we're called to actually defend what we we have. And although it's a last resort, sometimes we should stand up for what we believe in. You get people who think that capital punishment is fine because if we don't show people that human life is sacred, then we're diminishing it. If we don't show people that to kill somebody is worthy of death, then you're cheapening human life. Whereas other people will say, well, hang on, our our legal system is so flawed, you can't guarantee that you're actually doling out the right punishment for someone. So it becomes a very thorny issue but God is quite clear is that he considers human life sacred and the taking the taking of human life 
is a sin that takes you out of God's protection. But it's a very serious, serious crime. But we need to make sure that we don't tag on to our disposable society the idea that human life is disposable. I was actually listening to a, a message on the Ten Commandments, strangely enough, the other day, and it talked about the fact that abortion only became popular in Western society when we changed our terminology. And when I say popular, I mean that in a, not in a fun sense. But the idea of killing babies is an anathema to most people. In other words, most people think that's a horrible thing to do. We would, you would not, who would, we would not kill a baby, would we? But somebody had the bright idea of using the scientific name and calling babies who hadn't been born yet fetuses. But a fetus is, who knows? I mean, a fetus is it's a name. It sounds almost um, fecal. It, it's just, it, it's one of these scientific names that doesn't really mean. You, you don't have any empathy for a fetus. It sounds like footus or, or it's, it's a weird, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. And they actually, this was actually done on purpose to, make, to dehumanize babies in the womb to make it easier for people to decide to have abortions without feeling guilty. Because our language changes to reflect what we want to do. And this, is, this is why we use euphemisms for dying. We don't want to talk about dying, so people pass away. They slip to the other side. They are no longer with us. They pass over. They die, people. They're dead. Hope there aren't too many. All the young people have gone out the back. <laughs> Not to frighten too many people. Oh, they've done it all already, so <laughs> they're way ahead of us. So we've got to be careful that we don't cheapen human life by calling it something different. You know, old people. We're talking about aged care. Can you care for aged? It's not aged care, it's aged person's care. But because we take the person out, aged care, you can kill an aged, you know, voluntary euthanasia for aged people. We've got to be very careful that we don't dehumanise our language to make it easier to kill people. It happens in war. Who knows that wartime posters often talk about the enemy's scum. Hitler got away with gassing six million Jews because he started a rumour that they were subhuman. In fact, every speech he made, he referred to them as subhuman. People started believing, well, it's all right to kill subhumans because sub means not, not yet, not really, almost. Racism and slavery were started because people... People got up and people who were Christians got up in the pulpit and actually preached on the fact that black people didn't have a soul. It wasn't worth going to Africa to spread the gospel because you can't save people who don't have souls. They're subhuman. This is how it started. People changed their language to dehumanize other human beings. And that's how it starts. It just starts with language. A word changed here and a word changed there. And suddenly we're murdering people. Uh, subhumans, sorry. So we have to be very careful about 
how we, what we make disposable in our society. Even just using the word, a razor used to mean one of those long-bladed things that folded into your handle. Yes, you'd have to strop like this. You could use your grandfather's razor because it lasted that long. I mean, who here has a razor blade that lasts more than three months? <laughs> Cheap. Yeah. If you shave, all right. I mean, you get a pack of them, and they're who, who's that? Disposable razor blades are incredibly expensive. How much is it for a pack of five? It's about eighteen dollars or something, isn't it? Fifteen dollars. So five dollars a razor blade. And who knows that in every packet of five. Head, razor heads, only one of them is sharp. And it's always the last one. Is, anybody, is that just me? Or? Yeah, you get the first one out, you shave with it, and after a couple of weeks it starts to nick you and cut you, and you think, okay, you go for the second one, and that lasts a couple of weeks. But the last one lasts for months. Because it's sharp, and you think, why couldn't this have been the first one? Because I'd still have four more. I, says, I reckon it's a, it's a plot, but... <laughs> Conspiracy theory. So somebody can Google that for me and discover if there is a, is a plot to make the last razor blade in the packet sharper than the rest. I'd really like to know. And, and it's very clever because it doesn't matter if you use that one first. It's still the last one that lasts the longest. <laughs> oh, okay. Paranoia is setting in. So to treat death as if it was of little consequence ignores the intrinsic value of humanity. It is a crime against the God whose image we bear. We are all very valuable. We are all extremely worthy to God and we need to be worthy to each other. Let's prove it. Can, can you stand? And I want you to look to your left and to your right and tell me who you see. There's as people. <laughs> so, I want you to prove how important you think people are to you and I want you to pray for the person next to you. Except for George, can I get... I'll, I'll just pray for you beforehand. Right. Now, nothing fancy or complicated. I just want you to... Let, let's do what we did. Let's turn to... This side, turn that way. This side, turn that way. And just rest one hand, unless you really know the person well, on, the, on their shoulder. No funny business, Barry. Stop that. <laughs> yeah, no, no hand on the shoulder, not the bottom. Okay, grief. Newlyweds. <laughs> and I, I just want you to begin to pray for them. Not You don't have to pray out loud. Just start confessing the value of that person in front of you. Start telling God how much they deserve His love, how much they deserve His care and compassion, how much they deserve your respect and love. pray for people as we lay hands on them we acknowledge their importance to you we acknowledge that they are a unique individual made in your image 
that you have a plan and purpose for them bigger than they can imagine think about that they are worthy of respect and love from every single person here in Jesus name now I want you to do an about face same for the person on the other side of you. No hugging. Just pray and believe that this person that you're laying hands on is a unique creation from God Almighty. That they have incredible potential. That God has great plans for them. That they will come to pass. God's promises in their life happening as we speak. Their future is awesome and you are going to support them any way you can because you too are built in the image of God. You are Christ-like in every way possible. In Jesus' name. Okay. You can now face the front again. Perhaps just sit for a couple of seconds it's important actually to recognize that when God gave us the ability to speak with him notice not only he didn't he give it to any other creation he denied it to any other creation but in giving it to us he gave us a choice and it's interesting in in those choices that whenever God gives you a choice he keeps something back notice in the garden of Eden they could have whatever they wanted except for one tree Notice when we we go out into the world, we can do whatever we like, we can earn whatever we like, but God says, hold back a tenth for me. And I believe it's so that we will recognize that it's not just our own eyes we're important in, but it's God's eyes. There's something that God reserves for himself of each and every one of us. the interesting thing is there's choice in there as well he'll only do it if we make the choice to let him so before I close the service I want to give you a choice here this morning your heart may be fully synchronized in step in time with God you may have asked him to be Lord of your life you've put him in control of everything and you can say In truth, I'm a child of God. I've put my life in God's hands. I can call myself a Christian. I can call myself a Christ follower, a believer. Because I've made that choice to put God in control. But you may not have done that this morning. Or you may even have done that in the past and then decided you were going to take control back again. We men like to do that a lot hate to let go of control but the blessings from God come from when he's in control 
So I want to give people a choice this morning. If you've never put God in control, you've never actually said, okay, God, I lay down my life. You're Lord, not me. You're in charge, not me. You're my Savior. Then you can do that this morning. If you've done that before, but you've walked away and taken control back, and you want to say, okay, I've realized my mistake. I'm going to give you control of my life again. Then you can do that this morning. And all it takes is to pray a simple prayer, allowing God back into your heart to take control. So can I ask everyone to close their eyes, bow their head. And if that's you this morning, but you've never let God take control of your life, or that you have, but you want Him to take that control back because you've taken over, then while nobody's looking around, I want to invite you just to raise your hand. I'll acknowledge that I've seen it. You can put it back down again. And we'll pray together to allow God back into your heart. Is there anyone here this morning who'd like to do that? Excellent. Open your eyes. It's all good to see that we're safe in Jesus' arms here this morning. Now, who would like prayer for anything else? No? Well, bad luck because Barry and Michelle are going to be up here in a minute. And perhaps if you didn't want to admit it to me, you can admit it to them that you actually would like prayer. You were just scared I was going to drag you out here in front of everyone, weren't you? I may do that anyway. Megan looks as though she could do with some prayer. Just joking, that wasn't a prophecy. (laughs) So yes, I encourage you, Barry and Michelle, as I said, will be out here up the front ready to pray up a storm for anything you might need. So avail yourself of that. If you don't feel that you need their prayer as much as you need a coffee, then I suggest you head straight to the back and get your name on the list to to get a superb coffee for a morning tea.